Hello and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today we have quite the treat in store for you. We are going to try and cover basically the entire Middle Ages, which is insane, even by my standards. Like, I realize that I have made many a video and many a lecture at this point that proposes to cover whole thousands of years, and honestly we're not even covering as much time as we did for like the... Troy and Wallusa lecture or the Achaeans up to the Archaic period lecture, but we have a lot more history to cover because a lot more stuff is happening throughout the Middle Ages. One of the characteristics of studying history is that the closer you get to the present age, the more material you have to work with and the more plates you have to keep spinning. Um, so enough preface, let's jump right in. You're probably expecting me to do what I've been doing for the last couple of lectures and give you some big fancy timeline like this that was obviously made by a sixth grader sometime in 2004 um, to wax on about certain key points of it and then to keep using it throughout the lecture, but we're not going to do that this time. The main reason is because whenever you talk about the medieval world, you tend to get pretty deep into Eurocentrism really, really fast. Virtually every time that you talk about the Middle Ages, you end up banding around terms like it's the Dark Ages, or it's, you know, medieval Europe, or whatever. Um, and the fact of the matter is, that's really only a tiny part of what's going on in the medieval world, and importantly, it's also kind of the crappiest part. Um, Europe sucks! at this particular period in time. Like, they're doing lots of cool stuff, and we'll talk about a lot of the cool stuff that they are, in fact, doing, but that moniker, the Dark Ages, specifically refers to the fact that, like, for about 500 years and change, we really don't have a lot of evidence for what's going on in Europe at the time. Rome fell, and with it fell all of the infrastructure and all of the centers of learning and all of the, like language uh, proficiency, you know, Europe becomes really illiterate really fast in the wake of the Roman Empire, and the few places where literacy are preserved tend to be in monasteries and churches and cathedrals and so on, which means that almost all of the history, almost all of the literature is tinged with a Christian bias. Um, so, point one that we're definitely going to have to address as we talk about the Middle Ages, we're going to get a crash course in Christianity today because there's kind of no way to talk about either the Byzantine world or the European world in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire without talking pretty heavily about not just Christianity from a political and historical perspective, but even some of the major theological elements. Um, so buckle up for that, though that's not coming for a little while yet. Um, the other thing is, while we tend to understand this as being the moment that, like, Europe becomes Europe and that Europe becomes the direct inheritor of the Roman Empire, that's really not true either. The Roman Empire is broken up at this point. Like, you'll remember when we last talked about the Roman Empire, we very much emphasized that there were two major things going on. Namely, first of all, it was divided into two halves. The Western Roman Empire was the crappy half of the empire. Everybody knew this. That's why Constantine moved his capital over here to Constantinople. Um, and additionally, like, as far as the, the whole management of the empire was concerned, it was clear that it was just a game of attrition at this point. Um, the barbarians weren't getting any less aggressive, and they were, if anything, getting stronger, what with getting pushed out of the way by Attila the Hun or other mysterious folks from the east. 
Um, and, you know, it's just a matter of time before Rome especially ends up falling to this particular menace. But also keep in mind that Rome doesn't just mean, you know, Western Europe. Like, Western Europe is, again, the crappy part of the Roman Empire, and that fails to include the fact that the entire administrative power of Western Europe is also running the western half of North Africa, and in fact, Western North Africa is doing way better than Western Europe at this point. Like, as Christianity is developing, as much as Rome is this major center of Christian thought and Christian thinking, Really, all of the really cool philosophers and theologians that come out of the Western Roman Empire tend to come out of Carthage and its surrounding environs. Um, there are a lot more African uh, Christian scholars than there are necessarily Roman and Italian ones at this point in time. Or at least the ones in Africa tend to get more press. So, you know... Eurocentrism tells us that Christianity is very much a European religion, and we'll talk about the reasons why that is the case, but that's a really skewed view of who the real Romans turn out to be, who actually inherits the legacy of the Roman Empire. Because honestly, the folks over here in the East have a way better claim to the authority and to the bureaucratic structure of Rome. The Byzantine Empire is very clearly the direct inheritor of Roman authority and Roman power, again, as we'll talk about it. Um, so really, there are kind of three entities that we need to talk about in order to understand what is actually going on with the entire medieval world, at least insofar as like Homer and his inheritors are coming. Now, I should stress, when we say Eurocentrism, and me banging on about Eurocentrism here. On the one hand, there's kind of like two sides to this issue. On the one hand, I really want to emphasize, yeah, we tend to talk about the Middle Ages and the medieval world in terms of Europe alone, which is really, really short-sighted and misses out on some of the coolest stuff that is happening in the world right now. Um, but at the same time, I should emphasize, we're not going to do full like discussion of everything that is going on in the world. Um, as much as I do want to expand the discussion of, hey, what's going on with Homer beyond, hey, what's going on with Homer in just, like, these three countries over here, which would just be dumb, um, I can't expand this discussion to, you know, hey, what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa, or hey, what's going on in, like, East Asia, or hey, what's going on in the Americas. Like, this is still, at the end of the day, Troy and the Trojan War, and I can't suddenly turn it into a discussion of, like, Anansi fables or, you know, coyote folklore in North American, uh, like, native tribes. That's not within the scope of the class. As much as, like, the, the trouble with opening the door by talking about something like Eurocentrism is the fact that we are still the product of Eurocentrism. I am still the product of Eurocentrism. This class was designed as part of the product of Eurocentrism. Like, why are we studying Homer and not any of these other mythological traditions? Because Eurocentrism. Because we tend to think that Western culture is more informative or more important than other cultures in understanding our own heritage and our own legacy, which seriously diminishes the role of, again, Sub-Saharan Africa or Eastern Asia or the North, the American uh, civilizations at this point in time. Like, that kind of sucks. 
Um, but it's also not something I can do anything about. I am a product of this tradition every bit as much as you are. Um, and as much as you are taking a class that very much sort of is part of this whole problem and is part of this whole tradition, it is still what so many of us consider important and so many of us consider valuable that it's pretty hard to steer this giant speeding truck in a new direction. Um, the fact of the matter is, I would love to teach a class on Anansi or Coyote or, you know, Japanese or Chinese mythology, but I wouldn't be qualified to do so. My training is in Greek and in Western culture as we understand it. Um, so on the one hand, I recognize that I'm part of the problem here, and you should absolutely go out of your way to find other traditions, other perspectives, stuff that contemporary mainline academia in the States probably isn't terribly equipped to give you, though it is getting better at it. But what I can do is expand the discussion of what constitutes Western culture to include lots of other stuff that definitely constitutes Western culture. Um, when we say the West or Western culture, we usually have a really narrow idea that this is basically Spain, France, Italy, Germany, England, and the rest of the world can go fuck itself. The fact of the matter is, if we are talking about Western culture as being everyone who inherits Alexander the Great's conquests, and i.e. everybody who inherits the Roman Empire's sort of collapse, we're talking about way more than, again, Spain, France, Germany, Italy, and England. We're talking about the Byzantines over in Asia Minor, which, again, we've been talking about Asia Minor this entire class. It would be really, really dumb to stop talking about it right now. Like, Troy is here, remember? Very close to where Constantinople is currently located. If we didn't talk about Byzantium, we'd be absolutely screwing up on this one. Um, but what's more, the sort of elephant in the room that we haven't talked about that we really do need to discuss when we talk about the inheritors of Roman power and sort of the major players that make up Western culture at this point in time, we've got to talk about Islam. Like, Islam is the big mover and shaker of, you know, science and technology. They are the ones who preserve, you know, the great Greek texts, who are very deeply interested in the same philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, that we've been talking about since, you know, classical Greece. Like, Islam is a huge part of this equation, and every time that we limit our perspective to, hey, what are the Christians talking about, we're doing a huge disservice to one of the most important cultural, like, sort or centers in the entire world at this point in time. So the three players who really do sort of divvy up Roman power in the fall, in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire, we have to talk about Western Europe, and we will, but we're going to talk save them for last. We're, we have to talk about the Byzantine Empire because they are the direct successors of Roman power, and we have to talk about Islam. Because Islam is controlling a lot of the world that is currently the place where the Romans and the Greeks used to be. Um, now that said, we do have to start with Christianity. Um, remember, at the end of the Roman Empire, again, like, Christianity is getting stronger and stronger and stronger and will, in fact, especially in Western Europe, end up supplanting the power structures that used to be specifically secular and typically pagan. Um, so as much as I am, you know, talking here about Eurocentrism and expanding borders and expanding horizons, and yes, we will talk about Islam, and yes, we will talk about Byzantium, and so on and so forth, 
we can't talk about any of those things without getting that pretty solid foundation in Christian perspective. And much as I suspect that many of you ha are sick and tired of hearing about Christianity, for some of the rest of you, I suspect you don't know enough to proceed. And that's kind of the weird thing about talking about Christianity at any point during this whole academic process. Once upon a time, you could assume that everybody knew the basics of Christianity. Now you cannot. So we're going to have a little tiny Christianity lecture right here. Please bear with me if this is all familiar from your church stuff, or if you are sick to death of talking about it. Like, I do tend to present it rather differently than most, because again, I'm teaching, not preaching. Um, but if you find yourself confused by the distinction, don't worry about it. Um, what I want to emphasize about Christianity, again, first off, is that it's expanding like crazy. Um, this map shows the spread of Christianity, as, you know, the little box up there in the top right is very much indicating. Um, the darker purple areas are Christian centers that have been Christian centers for a long time, like since before the 3rd century, um, in some cases. And then the rest of the sort of lighter purple area is stuff that becomes thoroughly Christianized by the end of the 6th century, um, all AD slash CE at this point. Um, now, one of the things that I should definitely emphasize about all this is that the first part of this process, like the first 300 years of Christianity being a thing, Christianity is very much underground. Um, Christians are not welcome in the Roman Empire for the, like, first three centuries of it existing. Um, it is initially, when it starts to spread, basically a public nuisance to the Romans, but by the time of the Emperor Nero, in around 50 AD-ish, uh, he decides that it is politically expedient to blame things that are going wrong in the Empire on the Christians. Um, specifically, Nero, like, was out of town when Rome got caught on fire and got very much blamed for burning Rome down himself. Um, there's this old adage about, like, uh, Rome burning while Nero fiddles. Um, Nero is trying to avoid a public relations disaster. He is one of the early emperors in the wake of Caligula who, like, is, realizes that imperial power is only as strong as everybody agreeing with you. Um, so Nero decides that the best course of action is to say that the gods are pissed off. That's why they burned down Rome. Why are the gods pissed off? Well, because there's this rival religion that's showing up, making a mess of things. Those damn Christians keep setting Rome on fire, in short. Um, so in response, he sets a bunch of Christ Christians on fire, feeds some more of them to the lions, and this starts a long-standing tradition in Christendom of Christians getting martyred um, by various imperial powers and stuff. Despite that, though, the Christians continue to spread. Um, in fact, all of those times that the, the like, emperors and various Roman functionaries, like, kill Christians in order to make a point, usually the point that ends up being made is, damn, those Christians are hardcore. They are totally willing to stand up in a public place and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I don't care if you feed me to lions, set me on fire, or, you know, like, crucify me and then set me on fire. Like... And this is all stuff that did, in fact, happen. The Romans were brutal. Um, suffice it to say, everybody saw this and was like, Wow, what do those Christians know that I don't? I want some of that shit. So a lot of people very much signed up for Christendom. But you'll notice that most of the Christian centers, at least most of the early Christian centers, the dark purple area, 
tend to be in major urban locations, like the most populated parts of the empire, specifically Rome itself. Over here in Palestine, you know, that's a little different because, you know, shocker, it started there. But also, notice Asia Minor is like the hardcore center of Christendom, largely due to the efforts of this guy Paul in the first century, who basically, like, made it his personal mission to Christianize the entire uh, non-Christian world. Um, like, as much as Christianity started as a sort of Jews-only sect of Judaism, it very much spread for reasons that we'll talk about shortly. Um, so, suffice it to say, Christianity is getting bigger and stronger and more powerful, and once Constantine actually throws open the floodgates and is like, okay, so Christianity is not illegal anymore, we're not going to persecute Christians anymore, it just explodes. And then when it becomes the national religion of the Roman Empire, well, now all of those priests who are enjoying all those, you know, benefits and, like, tax breaks from being pagan priests are like, well, shit, it, I guess it's either turn, convert to Christianity or lose all this awesome stuff that I've got. I guess I'll convert to Christianity. So, again, like... Christianity has a long history here, and we're going to touch on quite a bit of it. The main thing to keep in mind for now is that it's expanding rapidly. Um, but the other thing that I really want to emphasize is the actual theology going on here. Again, it doesn't make sense to study what is going on with Homer and Christendom if we don't understand what Christendom is on about so much just generally. Um, so first off, obviously, this is about Jesus. Like... He's the guy whose birthday supposedly marks the difference between B.C. and A.D., the modern era versus the, the ancient period. Like, we count backwards from his birth in order to get to, you know, what time something happened in the past. Or we count forward from his birth. Like, history is divided up by Jesus' birth according to, you know, the traditions that we've long established for thousands of years largely because it was christians who made this system in the first place and they're like well jesus was obviously the like turning point of history our enumeration of history should reflect that um so jesus is a big deal um now who is jesus this gets complicated in the jewish faith they believe in one God and one God only. This is like the central tenet of the Jewish faith. It's the thing that they get the most angry about when Romans and Greeks would come to Jerusalem and try and take the place over. Um, they would like try and install their gods there and the Jews would absolutely throw a fit and in many cases revolt. And in one case, they successfully kicked out the Greeks, which is hardcore. Do not mess with the Jews and their God. They will absolutely... Uh, screw you over. Um, suffice it to say, like, the Jews are very hardcore about they have only the one God, and that is it. No other gods, no huge pantheon, and in fact, there is lots of historical evidence in the Old Testament, as far as the Jews are concerned, that says, if you follow God, he will protect you and, like, do awesome things for you and beat the crap out of your enemies for you, but if you lose track of that and start worshipping pagan idols or, like, you know, Babylonian or Canaanite gods, then God abandons you and bad things happen to you and he punishes you to make a point. Um, so rule number one of the Jewish faith, there is one and only one God. Rule number two of the Jewish faith is you do not want to make that God mad. 
Um, this is the process that we usually call sin. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and them screwing up the original commandment of God, namely don't eat the fruit from the one tree. They ate the fruit because humans. Um, and the entire story of human misery follows from the fall of man, as it's usually understood. Um, so if rule number one is, you know, like there is only one God, rule number two is follow that God. Follow that God's commandments. When God says jump, you say how high. Um, and this God is particularly keen to give laws and commandments, unlike the gods of the Greeks who basically just do whatever they want and life is chaos and what are you going to do about it anyway. Here we have a God who hands down specific written commandments to his prophet Moses and commands that you follow them. When you follow them, things go well for you. You prosper. Your harvests are blessed. You have lots of kids. They have lots of kids. Um, your lineage increases abundantly. If you don't follow those laws, bad things happen to you. Um, God punishes you and sometimes your entire nation for that. Sometimes that is as small as, you know, you get struck by lightning. Sometimes it is, you know, like the rest of the community finds out about it and beats you up. Um, sometimes it's as big as, okay, the entire Jewish people has been screwing up for so long that I am now mad enough that I'm going to sell them into slavery in Babylon. Um, only to be rescued by Cyrus the Great when the Medo-Persians take over the whole place. So again... A lot of the same history that we've been bumping into throughout this class applies to the Jews as well, though they read it very sort of self-interestedly and as a continuing story of God either punishing or protecting them according to whether or not they've been good or not. So the key here is one God, and that God doesn't like it when you sin. So you don't sin. Now, sin is inevitable. Like, this is an, an important tenet of the Jewish faith. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is, you know, totally free from sin. Everybody sins. It is a thing. So you have to be prepared for that sin. And God fortunately puts this whole elaborate system of sacrifice into play where, like, all you have to do if you sin is sacrifice a big fancy animal or something to God, and then you get to eat the meat, and as part of this whole ritual, like, you sprinkle the blood of the animal on you, and now you are cleansed. In order for sin to be repaid, people have to die. Call this rule number three. So rule one, only one God. Rule two, do not sin against that God. Rule three, when you sin against that God, the only way that you can pay for it is something has to die. Fast forward a little bit. So the Jews up until this point have been trying to follow the rules as much as possible. They've had a lot of slipping points. They've had a lot of successful moments. They've got, you know, military victories and military defeats. Um, at this point, after being conquered by the Babylonians and rescued by the Medo-Persians, they're enjoying a fairly short-lived time in Jerusalem doing their own thing before the Greeks show up and take them over. And then they manage to kick the Greeks out and then they enjoy another short-lived period of time free and doing their own thing before the Romans show up and again take over their temple, install these new gods, make a giant mess of things and generally piss off the Jews. Um, throughout most of this period though, ever since the old kings of like King David and Solomon and so on and so forth, there's been a kind of prophetic rumor going around the Jewish world that there's going to be this dude who they know of as Messiah. And Messiah is going to save them from their hardships. 
Um, he is going to cast off whoever the current, like, tyrannical, non-Christian or non-Jewish ruler of the time. Um, and they are going to, like, totally secure the Jewish place in the world and even usher in a new era when God himself is going to live among human beings. Now, there are differing reports about exactly what this Messiah is going to do. Some prophets seem to emphasize the fact that he's, like, bringing about this new world order, conquering his enemies, and so on and so forth. Other prophets have a slightly different view of the subject. Like, Isaiah has this passage about apparently he's going to be despised and rejected, and he is the stone that the builder refused, and, you know, apparently he's even going to die ignominiously, and the Jews aren't quite sure what to make of all of these apparently conflicting prophecies. Um, but they are eagerly expecting Messiah's arrival. When they are hanging out in Babylon, being the slaves of Nebuchadnezzar and company, they are earnestly hoping for this Messiah guy to show up and rescue them. Um, he doesn't. When they are the slaves of the Greeks, and when the Greeks are basically oppressing them and installing their gods, they are earnestly hoping that Messiah is going to come and save them. As it happens, he doesn't, unless you have a really generous understanding of how the Maccabees play into all this. Um... When the Romans take over the place and are doing their horrific, tyrannical abuse of the Palestinian people and the Jewish faith, once again, the Jews are eagerly expecting Messiah to show up and save them. This is where the story starts to get weird. This is where Jesus shows up. While the Romans are occupying Palestine, and the Romans are really annoyed about this situation, by the way. They don't like being here and dealing with this angry, grumpy religious sect any more than the Jews like them being there. Um, this guy, Jesus, starts going around saying that he is the Son of God, which is one of the names that is reserved for the Messiah. So people start taking notice. This Jesus guy is also apparently performing some miracles. He is healing some people, like blind men are seeing, lame men are, are walking, P people who couldn't talk now can talk, people with demons have had them cast out, like, everybody's starting to buzz about this Jesus guy. But what's more, this Jesus guy is also kind of sticking it to the major religious leaders of the day. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are kind of the two major factions of Jewish faith who are, you know, kind of feuding all the time and also very much being the leaders of the temple at this point, they are very much getting regularly insulted and dissed by this Jesus guy. So they're getting kind of grumpy about it. But there are two things that this Jesus guy does that kind of set him apart from the average miracle worker slash healer slash person claiming to be Messiah, of whom there have been several at this point. Namely, he kind of seems to, like, arrogate a bit more authority to himself than everybody is comfortable with. Like, at one point, well documented by the gospel writers, he's apparently talking to this guy who can't walk. Um, and he's doing this on the Sabbath day, Saturday, which is the day that God rested from all of his labors in the business of creating the universe. P.S. This particular God created the entire universe. It's kind of a big deal. Sorry, I missed it. We only have so much time to talk about this, though. Um, on this Sabbath day, you're not supposed to work. Like, the Jews have some really restrictive rules in place, again, thanks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which have emphasized, like, you can barely even go outside of your house on the Sabbath. You're definitely not allowed to, like, do real work. You can't, like, 
collect food or anything like that. You've got to have your food already ready to go on the Sabbath day. So all you have to do is like eat it. Um, and this guy, Jesus, comes into this house and there's this guy who can't walk. And the Pharisees and Sadducees know where this is going. And so they're like, oh, Jesus, are you going to heal this guy on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, hey, who is the Lord of the Sabbath after all? Like, if God wants me to heal this guy, then I'm going to heal this guy because he's in charge and he makes the rules, right? And the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, but then Jesus goes a step further and he says, hey, dude, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, what? You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Did you not read the whole bit in Leviticus where it's like, okay, so you committed a sin, so you have to sacrifice, you know, an unblemished lamb and then all this process and so on and so forth. And Jesus is like, hey guys, is it harder to say, I forgive your sins or get up and walk? And he's like, oh, by the way, get up and walk. And this guy who has apparently been unable to walk for basically his entire life picks up his mattress and walks away. This frustrates the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not just because Jesus kind of schooled them, like they're probably pretty used to this at this point, but because Jesus has specifically gone out of his way to emphasize that he has the authority to forgive sins and... Like we said, that's not something he's supposed to be able to do. That's something that only God is supposed to be able to do. But it's clear that this guy has some command over nature or he wouldn't have these sorts of miracles. And you can't have command over nature without God's approval because God made nature and he's the guy in charge of nature. So this makes them uncomfortable. But it gets worse. Because according at least to the Gospel of John and some of the other Gospels seem to like corroborate this in various ways, there's apparently this point in time where Jesus is having yet another heated discussion with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are being warned by Jesus. Like Jesus is like, you better watch yourself or you're going to go to hell. And they're like, what? Us? You can't tell us that. We are the children of Abraham. We are from the sacred bloodline. Like, we are Jews. We are saved. We are privileged by God. And Jesus is like, dude, if I wanted to, I could make sons of Abraham out of these rocks. Before Abraham was, I am. And while you might think this is, like, grammatically incorrect and that Jesus has made a bit of an error here... The Sadducees and Pharisees and basically everybody who is listening immediately pick up stones to stone him to death. Like, on the spot. Because that last phrase there, I am, is in fact the name that God took for himself when he was talking to Moses in the burning bush. This name is so powerful, so important, and so sacred that in order to protect themselves from accidentally committing the gravest blasphemy that could ever be committed, the Jews have prevented anyone from ever even speaking this name. Like, you just cannot say it. It is true that it corresponds very neatly with the Jewish phrase, I am, which, you know, you do have to say pretty regularly. But, like, any time that you encounter this particular name for God in the Torah, in the original five books of the Old Testament, it's literally not even marked with pronunciation marks because you're supposed to just like pause and not say it like they don't even say the word in quoting it they call it the tetragrammaton the four-letter word because it is so sacred that even to utter it while making a point is to commit a grave blasphemy 
Now, you may have heard this word before. This is what's usually called Yahweh or Jehovah. I don't like to use it because, again, I don't want to piss off my Jewish listeners. And what's more, I also am a Christian and perceive like the sacredness of God's name as being kind of important. And I try not to take the Lord's name in vain at all possible. And it seems to me that the Jews have a pretty good idea as far as the just never saying it is a pretty good idea. Um, obviously, Christians will disagree with me. It's a thing. Christians disagree. We'll talk about it. Suffice it to say, when Jesus says, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he is not just using the Lord's name in vain. He is calling himself God. So naturally, everybody picks up stones to stone him. There is only one God. He is not a man. This is the fundamental, most basic rule of the entire Jewish faith. And Jesus is violating that. Now, fast forward, and they kill him. Like... The Romans and the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, all cooperate. They get him very much crucified. He is killed. Sucks to be Jesus. But his legacy doesn't end. Because according to his followers, that was part of the plan. Remember when I said that rule one is there's only one God. Rule two is you cannot sin. Rule three is you have to like kill something in order to make up for your sin. According to the Christians, post-Jesus' death, Jesus was in fact God. His claim to be God was in fact true. He was also human. He was also Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah and the other prophets, both major and minor in the Old Testament. He did all of these things. And importantly... He willingly went to his own execution when he could have theoretically stopped it or performed some miracle or, like, blinded the entire Roman Empire because this is the once-for-all sacrifice from now on for all sin. This is emphasized thoroughly in the Gospels. According to most of the gospel writers, when Jesus dies, the curtain in the sacred most, like the innermost chamber of the Jewish temple is torn from top to bottom, thus revealing the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant used to be before they lost it. Um, the place where God himself is supposed to sit, the curtain is torn and God is now among us. That part of the prophecy is now fulfilled, according to the Christians. He is not physically among us, because God isn't physical. This shouldn't come as a surprise to no one. But instead, we no longer need the sort of intermediary business of priests and prophets in order to talk to God. We can each individually pray to him directly using Jesus, dead Jesus, who also, P.S., comes back to life three days later, according to all of these folks, who say that they have seen him ha hanging around, talking, lecturing, healing, doing all the things that Jesus usually does. So Jesus died but didn't die, because he's God, so he can't die. At the same time, because he did in fact die, because he did in fact sacrifice himself, the unblemished, unsinful human being, he is therefore the sacrifice for everybody's sin all the time. And all you have to do to accept that sacrifice, to acknowledge that sacrifice, is to accept that Jesus did this for you. The basic Christian message, the fundamental tenet of Christianity, is Jesus died for your sins, you are now forgiven so long as you accept him as your savior. And that is it.
I hope that I've made that clear and yet also succinct and efficient. Now you might be asking, why is this important? Why do we need to know this in a class about Homer? Because this is going to be a huge issue in trying to figure out how much of the pagan world, pagan in this case just meaning rural, remember that the Christianity spreads to the major cities first, all those people out in the sticks tend to still like worship Jupiter or in this case Zoroastrianism, um, and therefore haven't heard of the whole like Christian uprising business for a long time. Anyone who is non-Christian, A, needs to be converted to Christianity as quickly as possible for their own sake. That's how we save them from their sin. And B, we cannot let them contaminate us. So this leads to a bit of a problem in Christian circles. How do Christians deal with the fact that all of the really cool stuff in the culture, the great literature of the time, the scientific achievements of the time, the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, like how do we deal with the fact that all of those folks aren't Christian? How the wisest, smartest dudes of the last 500 years, the people who have basically made Roman culture what it is, how do we reconcile the fact that Christianity ultimately views them as sinners totally not redeemed by God because they didn't know about the saving grace of Christ? Now I should emphasize again, the Christians do not have a racial bias here. As far as they're concerned, anybody can join up with the Christians. There's this whole business in Acts where, like, Peter has this dream and, like, God's like, take and eat, Peter. And Peter can now, like, eat all of the stuff that used to be unclean. And he apparently interprets this as Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, are welcome to the Christian faith. And he goes out and proves it by converting a Roman centurion. Anyone can join up with the Christians. But that means that anyone who is dead and didn't join up with the Christians beforehand and wasn't in the Jewish faith and therefore couldn't anticipate Christ's coming is in hell and therefore bad news, and therefore trouble. And the truth of the matter is, the Christians can't figure out what to do about this. So we get very different perspectives, very different attitudes throughout the Roman Empire and throughout Christendom about how exactly Christianity is supposed to interact with pagan knowledge, pagan teaching. So over here on the left, this is Tertullian. He's one of my all-time favorite church fathers just because he's a badass and because he absolutely, like takes no crap from various other writers who are opposing Christianity, or for that matter, those Christian heretics, which are springing up all the time, by the way, and are actually a huge important part of the whole business of Christian history. But that's another conversation for another day. Tertullian wants none of it. He famously writes in one of his essays, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? We do not need Plato, we do not need Aristotle, we do not need Homer, we do not need any of the, Christ, of the Greek writers, and for that matter, we don't even need that many of the Roman writers, although, spoiler, Tertullian is actually a huge fan of Cicero and may actually lean Stoic and becomes a heretic himself because of this. Again, Christ, early Christian history is nuts. I love this stuff. I could talk about it forever. I'm so happy to be teaching it in here. Um... Tertullian doesn't want anything to do with the pagan world. He thinks that Christianity is totally self-satisfied, even if hypocritically he kind of ultimately turns his back on Christianity for the sake of his stoic philosophical upbringing. Tertullian's also a hardcore lawyer. It's a thing. Suffice it to say, he gets a lot of followers, and Tertullian becomes sort of the vocal major mouthpiece for Christian discussion and theology in the Western Roman Empire especially. Rome generally is going to follow Tertullian. 
but we've got a lot of important intermediaries before we actually get to that point. So Rome is going to be consistently suspicious of the Greeks, of Plato and Aristotle, of philosophy, of Homer, of Greek literature, and so on and so forth, though that's got a lot of changes to occur. Over here, on the other hand, though, we have this guy Justin Martyr. And Martyr argues that Homer actually was a monotheist. Um, he tracks down this one tiny little passage in the discussion that we saw in, like, book nine of the Iliad, where, like, Odysseus and Phoenix and so on come up to Achilles and they're trying to convince him to, you know, give up his anger. And remember that, like, Phoenix has that whole speech about, you know, don't forget the daughters of Zeus, the prayers. You should listen to prayers, Achilles. And Justin is like, dude, that means he's a monotheist. I have no idea if there is any basis in reality for what Justin is thinking about that or if Justin is just apologizing for Homer because he likes him. You know, this is basically the same thing as, like, the Christian kid who's like, hey, it's totally okay for me to watch R-rated movies because there's this thing in there about Jesus. So it's, it's holy, right? Right? Like... Again, Christianity has a lot of different perspectives, and I t honestly tend to think that Christianity is at its richest when it can embrace multiple different perspectives, when a diversity of voices can all sort of weigh in and there can be differences, which I know is kind of weird to think about here in the 21st century when basically all that you associate with Christianity and the newspapers these days is that they are basically protesting all the time against gay people or against transgendered people or against abortion and basically the entire of Christianity is basically being angry at people who just want to live their lives. That was not the case in the first and second century, I should emphasize. Christianity, once upon a time, was like, anyone is welcome here. You can all be Christian. We just straight up love you. Like, yeah, we have some rules about what you should do once you're in the door, but we are not at all going to be able to police you outside of our doors because, again, if anyone finds out that we're Christian, they will kill us. <laughs> like, it's a wildly different perspective. Um, so Justin is like, hey, Homer is cool. Tertullian is like, hey, Homer's the worst. We should totally reject him and all pagan teaching. And this kind of ends up breaking along certain political and, like, geographic lines. Like, Tertullian's down here in North Africa teaching his stuff, and his stuff is making it over to Rome, because, again, notice how close they are. Meanwhile, Justin Martyr and a bunch of folks who ultimately follow him and agree with his perspective that the Greeks actually are really good for a lot of things, they end up taking shop over here in Alexandria, as well as Antioch up here. These are like major Christian centers um, in the early Christian world. And as a consequence, you'll note when the empire splits right down the middle, west into east, it kind of follows there. Um, in the West, we have a lot of suspiciousness of the Greeks, a lot of suspicion of philosophy, a lot of suspicion of various pagan accomplishments, whereas in the West, we tend to be more open to these things. We like Homer, we like Plato, we like Aristotle, and this is going to have some major consequences. So let's talk about our three major factions. Enough about Christianity for the time being. Hopefully we have described it in enough detail that we've got a pretty good sense of where we're at here. Let's talk about the Byzantine Empire. So you'll notice the Byzantines do manage to conquer the West at one point. Hooray! Thank you, Justinian. You are awesome! Um, but it is very short-lived, and for like it, it's only like 15 years that they actually do in fact control Rome and most of the Western Empire. In fact, the Byzantines, awesome as they are, kind of flame out pretty quickly. 
Um, again, the really cool dude to talk about here is the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. He is the one who sort of makes it his personal, like, mission to conquer Rome, to sort of reunify the Empire. Um, but again, it doesn't actually last all that long. And as much as this is sort of what he's really up on, believe it or not, these days Justinian is beloved for a completely different reason. Namely, he took all of those crazy disparate laws all across the Roman Empire, various emperors deciding things at various times, various, like, Senate decisions, and compiled them into one major and consistent code of law, what's known as the Justinian Code. And virtually every law code in the West at this point, in Europe, in America, you name it, is based on the Justinian Code. This guy is awesome. He is a brilliant bureaucrat, even if he's not necessarily a great strategist and tactician. He is great at navigating these specific political troubles that he's dealing with, um, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and he has an impressive legacy as a consequence. But it's not going to be very long before the Eastern Roman Empire starts really shrinking. Uh, between the barbarian invasions from the west, retaking Rome, and sort of like the fact that Rome was kind of not on board with being controlled by Constantinople again in the first place, as well as the Islamic conquests in the 6th or the 7th and 8th centuries, the Byzantine Empire is very much going to get shrunk down to basically Greece, the Balkans, and Asia Minor for basically the larger part of its duration. That's what we're going to know as the Byzantines from basically the 7th century on. Um, now that said, they do a lot of really cool stuff in that time, but we should also emphasize they are hardcore Christian. Like, there are stories about people walking around in early Constantinople, like, before it became Byzantium proper, and, like, people would just go into a barber shop to get a shave or a haircut, and they could not help but overhear all of these Christians debating the fine points of theology. Um, like, Christianity in its growth and development spent a lot of time having arguments in various public places. Like when Constantine, in fact, said, hey, you Christians can, in fact, be a religion now. We're not going to persecute you anymore. The first thing he found was that the Christians were actually killing each other. Like, this guy Arius was apparently talking about, like, actually Jesus wasn't actually God, and the Christians were like, what? And, you know, as a result, there are literally, like, brawls in the street between churches. Like, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you were walking down the street of your city or town, and the two churches on either side of the street suddenly open their doors, and the entire congregation of both churches floods out into the street and starts beating the living hell out of each other. Like, like, this is apparently something that happened fairly frequently in the Christian world, and I kind of love it. Um, Christians being that passionate about their theology that they were absolutely willing to, like, take it to the next-door neighbors. Yes, that is not a good way to run a religion. Yes, that is not a civilized way to conduct oneself in a civilized society. But damn if it doesn't sound like fun in some respects. The Byzantines, though, are hardcore about Christianity, and once it is unified by the church in Constantinople and sort of, like, developed as this series of, you know, major patriarchs and major Christian centers. I think it's Antioch, Constantinople, Alexandria, Rome, and there's one more, I forget which one, um, that make up the five major patriarchs that apparently are the major voting block for, in theory, for a long time in Byzantium Christian history, before the Romans get big ideas about being Pope and kind of fly off and do their own thing. Uh, but notice, a lot of early Byzantine art actually 
isn't depicting anything. Like, you've got a couple of animals being shown here, but notice no people, no human representations. This is actually a hardcore Christian reason. Um, the Christians were really worried about depicting human beings, especially women. You can't draw pictures of women or else you might have impure thoughts about them. Like, you thought that, you know, your dress code at school was hardcore. Like... The Byzantines, as a result, developed this entire geometric art style, including, weirdly enough, the swastika, like that symbol in Nazi Germany, was in fact a Byzantine design. The idea being that, like, the twisted cross would, like, sort of build into these huge labyrinthine maze-like designs that would inevitably draw your eye toward the cross at the center, i.e. refocus your mind on Christianity. It's a whole thing. Like... We can't talk about the iconoclast controversy, although I kind of wish we could. Suffice it to say, the Byzantine early art forms were all hardcore Christian. First, in being not anything, so they could very specifically, you know, draw your attention away from the things of the world towards the things of the spirit. But later, they produced probably the most impressive Christian church in the entire history of Christian churches, namely the Hagia Sophia. Um, this is this huge Christian church in Constantinople, which when the Turks conquered Constantinople in like the 14th, 15th century, they construct all the minarets and turn it into the world's biggest, most awesome mosque. Um, so suffice it to say, like, these guys are hardcore Christian. This was supposed to be the center of all Christendom as far as the Byzantines were concerned. Yes, we'll talk about Rome in its own time. Again, from the Byzantines' perspective, the Romans are kind of the crazy offshoot uncle who keeps insisting on eating their lunch. Um, suffice it to say that the Byzantines are really invested in Christianity, and because of that investment, they are really leery of other art forms and this is where it gets relevant again. That includes, to some degree, Homer. Now, I should emphasize, on the one hand, the Byzantines are very leery of other art forms. They're very hardcore Christian. On the other hand, their Christianity is broad and broadly perspective enough that they have a pretty open mind about their heritage and their traditions. So this guy here, Eustastheos of Thessalonica, i.e. St. Eustace, as he's frequently known, lived in the 12th century and, importantly, wrote his whole giant commentary on Homer. Like, massive, multi-volume, huge, compendious history, which includes one of the best texts and one of the best commentaries and some of the best scholarship on Homer that exists in the Middle Ages. Um, the fact that he could write this and publish this means that Homer hadn't gone away. And in fact, it seems pretty likely from our studies of Byzantine history, what we have of it anyway, that students never stopped learning Homer. Like again, the Byzantine Empire incorporated a great deal of what was once Greece and a great deal of what was once Asia Minor, including what would have been Troy itself. This includes a lot of celebrations in the city of what would have been Troy by various Roman emperors, by various Byzantine figures. Like admittedly, the city of Troy kinda stops being a thing around the fifth or sixth century. Like it gets really depopulated and sort of just fades into obscurity for archeologists to discover a thousand years down the road. Um, but nonetheless, there's a ton of Christian interaction 
with the pagan world. The Byzantines are interested in Plato. And in fact, the Byzantines recognize that the early Christian fathers did very much sort of combine the ideas of Plato with their Christianity. So there isn't nearly the sort of knee-jerk concern about Homer that we see very much in the West and that we see from a lot of other very like hardcore Christian areas. Um, so it's not entirely clear. I've tried to do a, number, a bit of research on this, but this stuff is hardcore buried. Um, hopefully I'll have more information about it in the future. What it basically comes down to, though, is that we get this vision of sort of two different priorities here. On the one hand, Christians are pretty concerned about disseminating pagan texts, and there are a lot of writers who seem to share that concern including Eustathios. Much as he does present his whole commentary here, he also emphasizes, you know, sometimes reading Homer is like listening to a siren. Um, it can tempt you, it can deceive you, it can cause you to, you know, lose your senses and plunge into the sea of pagan research and, and study. But on the other hand, he emphasizes that there is a great deal of good stuff in Homer, that as much as, you know, he has all this stuff to say about gods, those gods are really allegories for, you know, various like virtues which we are supposed to express. He gets that the fundamental themes of Homer are about teaching you to be a better person and being a better person in Homer's day isn't that far removed from being a better person in the Christian tradition. What's more, the Byzantines still speak Greek for the most part. That hasn't stopped either. Like, remember when I said that the Romans had a lot of difficulty trying to convert the world into a Roman-speaking world? Well, they never succeeded in the East, and by the time that Constantine is setting up shop in Constantinople, they've basically just given up. Now, in the West, Latin is hardcore. Latin is the language of the church and will be the spoken and, like, trade language for many years to come, especially among monasteries, church figures, and basically anyone who can read. But in the East, Greek is still in charge, which means that you can still read Homer and it isn't that far removed from your own culture, your own time, your own language. So it sounds like, on the one hand, lots of resistance to Homer, lots of Christian safeguards against it. On the other hand, he's still current. People still read him. People still teach him in schools. They just do so from a Christian perspective. Now, the Byzantine Empire, like I said, is pretty short-lived. By the 11th century, it's very reduced between Islamic incursions from the East and the Holy Roman Empire starting to get a little combative in the West. It's complicated. Um, suffice it to say that during the long period of the Crusades in the 11th, 12th, and ultimately 13th centuries, um, the Crusaders from the Western Roman Empire, like, trying to, like, make crusader states over in the east especially around jerusalem like by dumb luck during the first crusade the crusaders did in fact manage to conquer jerusalem only to lose it shortly thereafter um when saladin kind of takes it over between the second and third crusades um during this whole business of crusading like Constantinople is kind of facilitating this. Like, oftentimes it's Constantinople, like, writing to Rome and being like, Hey guys, the, the Muslims are attacking again. Can you send some troops to help us? And then the Roman Empire is like, Yes, we will save our brother Christians from the infidel pagans. Um, and then they basically just say, like, Hey, anyone who wants to go kick some Muslim butt, you get a free pass to heaven. And, like, all of these random lords with nothing better to do who are disgraced or, like, the third son or something are like, Yeah, that sounds awesome! I've murdered tons of people! I totally want to get a free pass to heaven. 
The Crusaders are not the best people in the world, and the Crusades are generally a giant mess. Anyone who tells you that the Crusades were like the activities of noble, heroic Christians saving Christianity from the incurring, incur, like incursions of the Muslim menace are totally talking out of their ass. It is mostly a bunch of selfish bastards looking for land in places that otherwise they're not going to be able to get it. Um, the Third Crusade is considerably better organized, but by the Fourth Crusade, we've kind of lost sight of the whole plan. And by the time that the Crusaders, in fact, show up in the Holy Land, they're like, oh shit, the Muslims are way stronger than we thought they were, and also we're running out of food. Does anyone see any major cities around here that we could potentially sack and take all their shit? Oh right, Constantinople. Maybe we'll just sack that instead. So Constantinople and very much the Byzantine Empire kind of falls when the Fourth Crusade turns on itself in one of the great blunders of just history being dumb and people sucking very much. Um, and while Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire will in fact survive this invasion, it is at this point a long, slow march to the grave. The Turks will take it over in the 15th century, the early 15th century, I should say. Um, so, yeah, their time is very much limited here. Um, they are a huge force to be reckoned with in the Middle Ages, but they aren't going to survive much beyond it. And by the time that the Renaissance is well underway, the Byzantines won't be there to see it. It will be very much run by the Turks, which is a whole nother conversation that we're not going to get into because I don't know what I'm talking about there. Let's instead talk about Islam. Another thing that I really don't know what I'm talking about, but at least I know a little bit more what I'm talking about on this one. Um, so in the 7th century, Muhammad shows up and says, hey, I've got this mandate from God. Let's, you know, like form our own new religion. And this very much takes off. And by the 9th century, we are basically running a world empire that is even larger than Alexander's. Let no one tell you otherwise. Alexander the Great's got nothing on the Islamic conquests. The Islamic conquest extends, as you can see, all the way over to northwest Africa, manages to make the, the sort of bridge into Spain and takes over a great deal of Spain, as well as extending all the way east from the Arabian Peninsula into Persia, and once again, the Indus River. So we're going to be bumping into the Indians from in the Muslim sort of holdings and empire as well. Now, to call this an empire is a little misleading. Um, there are a lot of different factions in the Muslim world, the Islamic world, as I tend to prefer to call it at this particular period in history. Um, so there is not one unified government, one unified set of authorities. Islam itself is very much split along religious lines between the Sunni and the Shia, stuff that we really can't get into right here and now. Um, suffice it to say that this is a huge empire and it is united by a common faith, mostly, but it is also disunified as far as plans, organization, priorities, culture, etc., etc. Um, you can and should, if you are a Muslim from any part of this empire, make the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina at some point. Like, that's kind of a mandate in Islamic culture. Um, but beyond that, there's not a whole lot of agreement as to what you're supposed to do once you are there. So you get a lot of different perspectives. Um, but notice, this is important, especially for our understanding of the Middle Ages, because it means that the Byzantines and especially Western Europe are isolated. They perceive themselves as having enemies on all sides. 
What's more, I should emphasize that the Islamic world is a melting pot. Like, I know that this will probably come as a shock in a world where we tend to emphasize Islam as being intolerant and cruel, but seriously, Islam is not either of those things. Islam is actually totally open to cohabitating with other religions, and in fact, most of these conquered territories, again, you'll notice Judea is included in there, the center of Judaism, as well as all of those Christian territories, including good old Alexandria and Antioch, those major centers of the Christian faith once upon a time, they are going to remain major Christian centers of faith. They're just going to break off from the Constantinople church and form their own kind of church. Which is why today, when you talk about Christian orthodoxy, the church that was sort of the inheritor of that whole Byzantine world and the Eastern Roman Empire generally, you usually hear it divided into nation. It's the Armenian Orthodox, or the Greek Orthodox, or the Russian Orthodox, or the Coptic Church, like, or the Syrian Orthodox. This is an indication that they do all spring from the same trunk. Like, they all identified once upon a time as the Christian church under Justinian, under the world of Constantinople, but the because they were isolated by the sort of Islamic conquests, they ended up finding their own identity, having some major theological distinctions from what is the supposed Orthodox church in Constantinople, and therefore very much have their own identity. Um, so one explanation for the great diversity of Christian schisms we probably won't be able to get to most of the others. Like, we're not even going to get to, uh, like, Protestant versus Catholic in all likelihood. Um, suffice it to say, the Islamic world is huge. It is very tolerant of other faiths, although it is always eager to have you convert to Islam if you are, in fact, interested. Islam tends to be pretty friendly with the Jews and with the Christians especially. They are considered brother-like brother faiths it's complicated i really don't want to get too deeply into it but enough of this now we're already in islamic theology territory so let's talk about the quran um so all of this starts very much with as i said muhammad um and again like we're in dangerous territory because you're not supposed to like get too free with the either the Quran or de, uh, definitely depictions of Muhammad. Um, you'll notice that I am not showing Muhammad here. That's because that's considered very offensive in Islamic circles. Remember, again, both Christianity and Judaism also have pretty major restrictions about like using important names in vain. Um, now, I should also emphasize the Quran has a very different sort of like approach than Christianity and Judaism do. Um, for Judaism and Christianity, it's not entirely clear how much writing is God's and how much writing is like the prophets or the writers or the apostles or whatever until you actually dig into the text and the context. Um, Judaism recognizes, hey, God gave the law to Moses, but Moses like wrote it down and interpreted it. And a lot of the Old Testament has nothing to do with what God said in the first place, except it is kind of tracking God's actions. The Christians kind of simplify this by saying that it is like all scripture, i.e. the entire Old Testament, and debatably also the new, don't even get me started, is God breathed or inspired, but this is like the same language that we saw from like Hesiod when he says like the muse inspires us. So again, we've got this kind of vague hand-waving solution at this. We don't have nearly these kind of problems in Islam. According to Islam, the prophet Muhammad was visited by an archangel, I believe Michael, and Michael literally dictated to him what to write in the Quran. 
Um, which means a couple of important things. First off, the Quran cannot be translated. Like, I have a translation of the Quran in English. It is no longer the Quran. It is an English translation of the Quran. Like, you cannot, you can say the Bible and refer to the King James English version, but you cannot say the Quran and refer to some English translation. Like, no, the Quran is specifically in Arabic because that is the language that the archangel used to communicate to Muhammad the prophet. So this is a sacred language and the text of the Quran is a sacred text, period. These are God's words verbatim. So this is super duper holy. You do not mess with it. You do not change it. You do not abridge it. This is the text. Now, I should emphasize the actual pages that we're looking at here are actually in a surprising amount of dispute here. It is one of the oldest uh, surviving parts of the Quran, according to carbon dating, but apparently, like, there's some dispute about it, exactly how old it may be. Um, some say that this could, in fact, be contemporaneous with the Prophet Muhammad. Some say that that's not possible, that the form of Arabic is way too modern. I'm definitely not equipped to weigh in on that. The main takeaway here is that the Arabic of the Quran is itself a sacred language, and the holiness restrictions in Islam are perhaps even more crazy and draconian, or at least more restrictive and em emphasized than they are in Christianity and, and Judaism. Which means, as you would expect, that Islam is going to have some trouble with the Greek world. But at the same time, Islam is going to be really cool about the Greek world. Islam loves Aristotle. They absolutely read all the Greek philosophy and science they can possibly get their hands on, and Aristotle especially. Um, there are a ton of Islamic philosophers, and they all frequently refer to the Greek texts. They have access to those Greek texts. They're frequently translating those Greek texts. This is the primary way that all of that Greek philosophy is preserved, because as we'll talk about in the West, it's just gone. Um, What's more, Islam is actually doing a lot of really cool stuff in math and science. Like, one of the reasons why I consistently want to emphasize Islam's role in the Middle Ages is because they're doing this really awesome stuff that apparently nobody is paying attention to or everybody is at least consistently ignoring when they're writing their goddamn textbooks. Because Islam is doing science, they're building telescopes before Galileo does, and their telescopes are the most awesome telescopes you're going to get until Galileo starts making them. And P.S. when Galileo starts making them, he's basing them on Islamic designs. Like, I can't even. Um, likewise, they're doing great things in mathematics. They're anticipating calculus, although we're not quite there yet. They're making tons of really cool stuff. They're, in, like, engaging in trade without the throughout the entire Mediterranean world. Like... The Islamic world is awesome, and it is an absolute downright shame that we don't talk about it more. Like, that the entire story of the Middle Ages, as far as we Europeans and North Americans are concerned, basically boils down to, so Rome fell, and then a thousand years happened, and then Renaissance. No! No, it did not! That's not how it works. And the only way the Renaissance could possibly have happened is because the Arabic scholars had been preserving Plato and Aristotle for generations anyway. Like... Uh, Professor Kozlowski slams the door and runs away. Um, Islam is awesome, is what it comes down to. Islam is a part of Western culture. No question in my mind at all, whatsoever. Anyone who says otherwise is clearly just defining Western culture in a prohibitively, xenophobically narrow way. 
Um, so fuck those guys. Islam rocks. Let's talk more about Islam. Plato and Aristotle are the big ones here. Like most of the uh, most of the Islamic world is really interested in Greek philosophy specifically. They are translating Plato and Aristotle widely. They are disseminating it. Like you can find libraries with Plato and Aristotle in it as far west as Spain. And in fact, the guy who's like in charge of Toledo through most of the Middle Ages has this huge library that he's built in Cordoba. Like he loves studying this stuff. And this is usually something that rich Islamic folks are interested in doing. Like one of the ways that you flex your wealth in the Islamic world is you study Plato and Aristotle. You make scientific advancements. Like this is a mark of status in the Islamic world because frick, the Islamic world is badass. But the Islamic world doesn't have nearly the kind of respect that they do for the philosophers and the scientists of the Greek world that they do for Homer and the poets. So while the Islamic world is absolutely grabbing up as much Plato and Aristotle as they possibly can, they are much less eager to preserve, say, Euripides or Sophocles or any of the Greek-like tragic poets, or for that matter, Homer. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. First off, the Islamic world absolutely argues, no question, Arabic poetry is the best poetry. Like, multiple times across Islamic literature, you will find references to, like, the various cultures and their various great accomplishments. And, you know, the Muslims will give credit where it is due. Like, the Greeks were the best scientists and the Persians are the best administrators. But they very much emphasize what is the sign of Arabic accomplishment. Well, Arabic poetry is by far the best poetry. Why is it the best poetry? First off, it rhymes. Yeah. You were wondering this entire class, why don't any of our Greek poets rhyme? Because they don't give a shit about rhyme. Their entire like metric scheme has to do with feet and like long and short beats like we talked about in that first week of class. Um, what's more, if you go over to medieval Europe, you're going to find that they don't care much about rhyme either. Like, they're actually all about this alliterative verse in the latter part of the medieval world. Like, some places are rhyming, but that's kind of like coming from the Arabic world. Yeah, rhyming poetry is an Arabic thing. Fuck you. Islam is awesome. Um, Arabic poetry rhymes, and even more importantly, even more obviously, and even more clearly, like undisputable is guys god gave muhammad the the whole like text of his message in arabic obviously god's gonna pick the best language to write his message to the people in so here we have the quran how can you disagree with the fact that arabic is the best language clearly arabic is the best poetic language clearly islamic poetry is the best poetry all the rest of you suckers can go home and forget it so Homer, screw that guy. Like, who cares? Because he's got an inferior poetic form, and what's, what's up with him anyway? Like, what's up with all those gods hanging out in Homer? Like, obviously there is only one god, and while we do also get a couple of Islamic scholars, as we'll talk about in a moment, who do identify the same sort of passages and be like, hey, wait, Homer is in fact secretly a monotheist. We'll get there. Um... Generally, the Islamic world, like the Christian world, is really skeptical of that whole Homeric polytheism thing. Um, 
American poetry has all this poly pagan polytheism in, in it, and therefore we don't want any truck with it. Like, even more than the Byzantines and the Christians tend to be suspicious of Homer, the Islamic world is very suspicious of Homer. Largely because, again, they don't have that connection to it. Like, anyone who's going to be in the Christian world at this point in time is going to have grown up with Homer. So Homer is going to stick around for a while because people still value it, even if they do have trouble reconciling their Christian beliefs with Homeric teaching. They will find ways around it the way that Justin did, the way that, you know, Eustastheos emphasized. Um, the Islamic world really doesn't have that. Um, Homer is still an important part of the culture in a lot of the old places that they've taken over where the Byzantines used to run the show or where the Romans used to run the show. Um, so Islam is bumping into it, but they're even more suspicious of it and it is real hard for the Christians to justify keeping it around because again, everyone agrees in monotheism and Islam is really not interested in Homer for the reasons we're talking about now. Additionally, Arabic poetry doesn't do epics. Um, there's no evidence of this. Like, there's plenty of Arabic precedent for, like, heroic things being done. The, uh, the Arabic world has lots of beautiful poetry about, like, epic deeds, but they tend to be much more episodic, um, than Homer is. So the fact that they've got this giant friggin' poem hanging around means that they don't quite know what to do with all this poetry all at once, all about this one particular subject. Additionally, the, as we've seen, the Arabs are pretty suspicious of translation, generally speaking. Um, and they're especially suspicious of translating poetry. Because again, you know, poetry, it's part of the experience is about the sort of like way that it sounds to your ear, the rhythms and the meters. Um, and just as, you know, the Arabic world is very disinterested in translating the Quran for anyone else to read, because again, that would be like wrecking the sacred words passed to Mohammed, um, if the poetry of the Quran and the poetry of the Arabic world can't be appreciated in other languages, then you definitely can't appreciate Homer in other languages as well. Now that said, it does get translated, not into Arabic, but into Syriac at one point, due to a huge widespread translation movement. But again, that translation movement is primarily geared to Plato and Aristotle, prose. Stuff that can, in fact, be translated. Stuff where the message, the content, is more important than the presentation. So again, nobody is learning Greek in order to pick up Homer. Nobody is going to, you know, go out of their way to translate Homer because again, you can't translate poetry. So nobody's that interested in him. But like I said, Homer does get translated into Syriac. Additionally, everybody's been reading Aristotle and Aristotle praises Homer to the skies. So obviously they're aware of the fact that Homer is the like preeminent Greek poet more important than all the others. Additionally, they're reading Plato and they're seeing, you know, Plato is grumpy about Homer at various times. Um, but again, Aristotle is king over here. So like they are familiar with the fact that Homer is a big deal. And apparently some people are learning it. Um, Hunayn bin Ishaq is reported in the ninth century. He is one of the major architects of the translation movement. One of the guys who is translating all these prose Greek texts into um, Arabic and other languages is supposedly memorizing Homer in the original Greek and other people recognize it as Homer. So clearly Homer is in the wind here. Like we're not seeing a whole lot of reproductions. We're not seeing a whole lot of translation. We're not seeing a whole lot of like riffing on the Homeric formula. He's not respected as one of the great artists of the ancient world, the way that we respect him now, but he is still somebody that everybody is familiar with. He is still well known in Islamic circles. And again, importantly, in the 11th century, we see people starting to take notice. 
Um, we have Al Biruni, who is sort of looking over the folklore traditions in India, especially the stuff that will one day make up the 1001 Arabian Nights. And he's like, hey, there's a lot of similarities to Homer over here. And damn, if I don't want to do like a personal study on comparisons between the 1001 Nights and, you know, the, the Odyssey, especially and the, the Iliad as well. Like, as far as I can tell, if those studies exist and why don't they exist, they exist mostly in Arabic. And I unfortunately don't know Arabic like... My wife tells me I really need to learn Arabic because this is like the fourth time that I'm having this conversation where it's like I'm trying to read up on my Islamic scholars and getting excited about Islamic philosophy and getting excited about the Islamic world. And I can't access any of the literature because, again, Eurocentrism refuses to acknowledge that the Islamic world is as awesome as it is. So I'm forced to get like these crap translations or like track down these old books from the middle of nowhere or have the poor good folks at Sprague Library track down like really obscure volumes of like the Philosophus or Theologus Autodidactus which is this really awesome book about like this guy who like grows up on a deserted island and discovers the truth of Islam just from like observing nature and stuff I'm telling you the Islamic world is awesome anyway additionally we have one other scholar who apparently just disappeared off the face of the earth for some reason who is also commenting on Homer and arguing in the 12th century that Homer is in fact a monotheist and maybe we should cut him some slack. Suffice it to say, the Islamic world is awesome. The Islamic world is well aware of Homer. The Islamic world has as much right to be called the West and Western culture as anything else that we've been talking about. And importantly, without the Islamic world, we wouldn't have the access to Plato and Aristotle that we do today because they're the guys who absolutely loved those writers and preserved it. But we're running out of time, so we got to talk about Western Europe. Western Europe is a mess. Um, the Most of the time when we talk about medieval Europe, this is about what it's going to look like. Our major players here are, again, the Byzantines over here on the Eastern Front, the Muslims over here on the Western Front, as well as being down in the South and surrounding the entire Mediterranean. So, so much for trade if you're not Muslim. Um, but importantly, the major countries we're going to be talking about when we talk about medieval Europe are, once again, England, France, and, quote, Germany slash Italy, which at this point is being consolidated in the Holy Roman Empire because the papacy has decided that holding all the secular power and all the religious power is a little bit too much for them. Note all of the popes that have been assassinated in the, like, 8th and 9th century. So they basically declare, hey, we're going to do the Roman Empire again, but this time Rome second to church first. So they raise up this guy, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, to be the first Holy Roman Empire. And Charlemagne's like, I'm the Holy Roman Emperor. And everybody's like, fuck you, I am in charge of my own territory. And Charlemagne is like, well... If you're going to be that way, I will conquer all of your land and turn it into the Holy Roman Empire and you'll just have to deal with it. At which point he does and everybody agrees and this is why France, the Holy Roman Empire and England are broken up the way they do. Because as is always the case in these situations, when Charlemagne dies, his sons divide it up and we divide it up in some crazy ways. And this area especially is going to be a giant mess. Um, that border is going to be disputed for a thousand years and change. It's literally the same border between France and Germany that is getting fought over in World War I and World War II. So have fun with that. Now, we should emphasize the real thing to remember, especially for our purposes in this class, is that the, quote, Dark Ages, A, weren't as dark as they actually supposedly would suggest. Again, the Islamic world, the Byzantines are doing awesome stuff all the time. Shut up. 
the to get out of your Eurocentrized version of the world. But importantly, with the fall of Rome came the fall of basically the entire knowledge of Greek and basically all of Greek culture. The Iliad, the Odyssey, understanding the Greek language, all that is gone um, during the fall of the Roman Empire and the time shortly afterwards. Now, at this point, thanks to the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament and of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, long story, can't get into it, um, Everybody needs to know Latin and the language of the church in the West, largely because it is the, lang the church that is growing out of Rome. Rome is perceived as being the center of Christendom in the West. All of them speak Latin. So despite the fact that the Romans for centuries have been kicking the Greeks' butts, hoping to try and institute Latin as the language of the Roman Empire, they do in fact succeed after they died. And the Western Roman Empire has fallen, and now Latin really is the language that everybody speaks in the West. But, P.S., only in Christian monasteries, only in centers of learning, the rest of the Western Roman Empire, or what was the Western Roman Empire and is now turning into the Holy Roman Empire, slash France, slash England, etc. If you are not studying the Bible, you're probably not literate, and therefore probably not reading anything. But again, since Latin is the language that survives, it's the Latin classics and the Latin writings that end up surviving as well. So the Aeneid, we've got, and everybody's reading the Aeneid, and everybody's counting on the Aeneid to tell them about what's going on in Homer. Um, the Vulgate, definitely in Latin, definitely studied. Christendom needs its Bible. It's a thing. Um, additionally, we've got understanding of Latin itself, and in those monasteries and so on, Latin is going to be preserved artificially to the point that, like, classical Roman Latin of Cicero and Virgil is going to be spoken into the 15th and 16th centuries by the leaders of the church and will continue to be the language of the church to this day. Hang out in Rome sometime, you'll find out that that's the case. Meanwhile, though, the Latin that was being spoke, spoken in Spain and France and England and so on is transforming into their various romance languages, as we like to call them. So France is sort of bastardizing their Latin into French. Spain is bastardizing their language, their Latin language into Spanish. Italy is bastardizing its uh, Latin language into Italian, and so on and so forth. So you will notice there are a lot of similarities between Spain, Spanish, French, Italian, and weirdly enough, Romanian, because they all derive from the original Latin and all come from there. The Germans, however, and the English are coming from the Germanic languages that the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths were speaking once upon a time. Again, whole other story, can't talk about it. The other main way that we are getting our Greek philosophy and our Greek literature and our Greek understanding of the world is through this guy, Augustine of Hippo, the most important philosopher and theologian of the Latin-speaking Western Roman world. Um, Augustine was writing at uh, roughly the same time as Rome fell, and in fact his most important work, The City of God, is very much written on the heels of the fall of the Roman Empire, and emphasizing the fall of Rome does not mean the fall of Christianity. There are not one but two cities, the holy spiritual city of God and the man-made physical city of Rome, which very much divides the world into a secular and alternatively spiritual world, which the Rome, Roman church is pretty willing to follow and acknowledge. Now, Augustine spends a lot of time talking about the Trojan War in the City of God, 
and comparing the fall of Rome to the fall of Troy, but he's not giving us nearly the sort of comprehensive look that we see in the Iliad or in other sort of like Iliad-adjacent works. So as you can see from this picture here of like a medieval interpretation of the Trojan War with here are the Greeks sailing in with their iron armor and medieval banners and clearly like medieval uh, technology waging a war against a medieval castle and raising up ladders the way that medieval warfare would have looked like with peasants and everything like this is how the medievals understood the Trojan War because they didn't have an actual real account of it they didn't have Homer sh sort of showing them the differences between their culture and the Trojan culture um so as a result, their imaginations were fully able to run wild and even encouraged to run wild in some cases, because as much as, again, they don't have access to Homer, they're still pretty obsessed with him. So there's, in fact, a lot of stuff you can do with Homer in the medieval world. Um, first of all, there are a ton of texts that aren't Homer, because, again, we're not emphasizing Homer, and Homer did not survive the transition to Latin because he's full of, like, pagan gods that we don't respect, and therefore Homer is kind of looked poorly upon in the medieval Christian world, even as his story and the story of the Trojan War is respected. Instead, they're looking to these prose accounts, i.e. texts that were supposedly in Greek and translated to Latin once upon a time and that professed to have an eyewitness account of Homer. But these two writers, namely Dictus Cretensis and Doris Phrygius, are both giant fakes. Dictus Cretensis was supposed to be some kind of satirical or farcical account of the Trojan War, supposedly published into Latin from the Greek by some apocryphal writer who was just trying to get people to laugh. But the medievals don't know the difference. They all they know is that they have this Latin account of these like of the Trojan War, so they adopt it as though it's totally the real thing, even though it's written like twelve hundred years after the fact and was supposed to be a joke in the first place. Doris Phrygius is actually pretending to be a Homeric eyewitness in some ways. It does in fact date back to the fourth and fifth century, but it is also very much apocryphal and is taken for real by the medieval world. So if you want to pretend to be some ancient text by some famous Greek writer who saw the Trojan War, go nuts! Because the materials aren't necessarily here to vet you and make sure that this is in fact true. Um, likewise, you can totally use Homer to justify your country's existence! Um, as we read for today, Geoffrey of Monmouth concocts this entire story about this famous Brutus of Troy, who, you know, is walking along in England at some point and decides to send up his new city, New Troy, i.e. London, right smack in the middle of England. And England is not the only country to sort of use Trojan culture and Trojan history to justify their own existence. France, too, derives their authority and their lineage from this guy, Francus of Troy, who was apparently the founder of the Merovingian dynasty and ends up being like the guy who founds the kings of, of France. This is all nonsense. But it is compelling nonsense, to the point that there are definitely 20th century scholars trying to look for evidence of Brutus and Francus. Um, notice, if you're sitting there wondering, where did these guys come from? I don't remember them in the Iliad. They weren't there! Like, Brutus, as you'll notice, is described as, like, leaving Troy with Aeneas, taking up shop with Aeneas on Italy, getting into a fight with his dad, apparently, accidentally killing him, and getting run off. 
Like, he has this elaborate, involved story that Geoffrey of Monmouth is apparently borrowing from some other historian, maybe the Venerable Bede or something else. But if he is, in fact, using some other source, we don't know what that source is. It seems like he's just making it up on the spot. Additionally, Francus of Troy is supposedly a reference to Astyanax. Like, supposedly the French are this, like, inheritors of Astyanax, who actually survived the Trojan War, managed to sneak off with Aeneas to Italy, and then found France. Because, no, it doesn't have to make sense. All it has to do is be convincing enough for you to buy into. So, you know, these nations, the most, some of the most important countries in the medieval world, see themselves as, just as the Romans do, being derived from Trojan authority. Um, they recognize the Trojan War and the significance of the Trojan heroes and kings the same way that the, that the Latins did. So this is not new. And additionally, all of these nations are going to see themselves as both the inheritors of the Roman Empire, you know, the last real authoritative secular power structure in Europe, as well as seeing themselves of, as direct inheritors of Troy through Aeneas or through Aeneas's buddies and stuff. This is a huge part of identity in the medieval European world. Homer hasn't died here, even though nobody can read him anymore and all of the texts have been lost. You can also just use Homer to justify your noble lineage. Manufactured genealogies are de rigueur in medieval Europe. Remember that scene in A Knight's Tale where Geoffrey Chaucer, yes, that Chaucer, is in fact hanging out with Heath Ledger and his merry band of misfits pretending to be a knight, and Chaucer, like, manufactures these genealogical documents proving that he is in fact, like, the son of the son of the son of the son of some random Trojan hero? This is happening all the time in medieval Europe. We have multiple obviously forged, obviously apocryphal references to great dynasties of king of like lords and ladies in England deriving their authority through Troy. Like, are they in fact derived from Troy? No, there is no possible evidence for this. They just claim it and no one can disprove it and it looks official, so what are you gonna do? Like... This is something that happens all the time in the medieval world, and it is hilarious how much people can get away with this shit. The fact of the matter is, the aristocratic lines of Europe have no basis in reality. There is no archaeological evidence that makes them out to be any better than the randos who happen to be in the area, and especially some people who we know are in fact just coming to power, but suddenly becoming rich, like... There's a particular English family who manages to, like, be peasants and be really good at being peasants and get a whole bunch of other peasants to pay them instead. And once eventually, like, the, the English aristocracy notices this. And they're like, wow, you have a whole lot of money. Have you thought about becoming a lord? And they're like, no, but we totally have an inheritance from Trojan lords, so we totally could be. Like, and they manufacture the documents to prove it. This happens all the time. Um, so, yes, Homer is, in fact, credentials, authority. If you can claim, like, lineage from the Homeric heroes, even better for you, because we don't have an Iliad to prove that you're full of shit. Um, you can also write huge tragic romances. Like, this is incredibly popular in the medieval world. You take the Trojan War as the setting for some random medieval romance story. Um, the most popular and well-known of these is probably Chaucer's own Troilius and Cressida. 
Um, Troilius does, in fact, get a mention in one of our stories. I don't think it's actually the Iliad. I looked for Troilius. I couldn't find him. Um, but I think, actually, in the Trojan women, you get, like, a side reference to Troilius. So this does, in fact, have some ancient you know, backing behind it so far as I can tell. But it's literally like a one-off reference. We don't know anything about this guy. There's no reason to think that he had this star-crossed romance with Criseida, the, like, woman who was captured by Greek forces and forced to, like, sleep with some random Greek hero. And notice, again, we have, like, hey, it's the Trojan War, but with medieval knights. Like, again, all over the medieval world. It's wonderful and hilarious, and I love it. This is what I wanted to do, teach this class about. Like, I am so excited, even though this is, like, the last history lecture, and we're not going to be able to follow up on any of this stuff. And I actually haven't read Troilius and Cressida in Chaucer. It's another huge gaping hole in my knowledge that I haven't actually read all that much Chaucer. We're going to do that, though. So help me. I am going to do that. Um, but we're not going to do it in this class unfortunately like reading Chaucer's Troilius and Cressida would be months um like it's really really long and I would feel bad not teaching it in middle English so yeah not gonna happen um but I should mention Troilius and Cressida definitely a thing there's probably an extra credit assignment where you read Shakespeare's Troilius and Cressida and talk about its connections to Rome or, or to Troy like again the Trojans are the it people in the medieval world and everybody loves telling stories about them and even if they are entirely nonsense have no basis in the greek mythic tradition and are basically reinterpreted as medieval romances who cares it's so much fun let's keep going the last thing that you can do with homer of course is go to hell dante gets so excited about really the Aeneid more than Homer, but he very much preserves the Homeric epic tradition in his Inferno, as we will talk about. And he spends quite a bit of time as well singing the praises of Homer, even though he's never read him, even though he has never been able to read Greek, even though the accounts of the Trojan War are mostly fabrications, or he's getting it directly from Virgil. Um, even if his, he's totally biased against the Homeric heroes, because again, the Romans in Virgil are kind of very self-conscious of the Greeks, and like Virgil takes every opportunity he can to like shoot down the Greeks and talk about how awesome Aeneas is by comparison. Like... This is the beginning of a new kind of epic tradition, a modern epic tradition rooted in medieval and modern virtues. So the last two readings in this class are going to be Dante on the one hand and Milton on the other. And we're going to look at the way that they transformed the Homeric epic for a Christian world. Because Dante too is dealing with the same trouble we've been dealing with this entire class. Namely, how do you reconcile your religious beliefs and your convictions about holiness with the fact that there's this really awesome, really beautiful epic poem that is polytheistic and pagan and totally not in line with either the Christian or Islamic truth. Um, Dante is going to wrestle with that. Watch for that when we read the Inferno. We will talk about it in the corresponding lecture. But let's end this conversation with the same sort of thing that's been looming over it the whole time. The Crusades and the ultimate move of the Aristotelian and Platonic and other Greek texts from the Arabic world into the medieval world. Very much during the process of the Crusades, as well as very much on the heels of the Crusades, whether these texts are found in conquered libraries or whether the increased trade with the Islamic world and the Crusaders states and in Spain leads to the transmission. At any rate, finally, the old Greek texts 
usually translated into Arabic, are finally making it back into the medieval European world. Again, without the Islamic world, we would not have these things. They're the guys who preserved it. They're the guys who protected it. We very much lost track of it in the 500 years between the fall of Rome and the rise of Charlemagne. Um, the Islamic world is the one that was protecting this. They were the ones who were keeping track of this stuff. When we, in fact, get it, we get it through Islam. It is great monasteries and writers like Thomas Aquinas who are sort of retranslating it into Latin or who are studying it and summarizing it, um, usually with the commentaries of writers like Ibn Sina or Ibn Rushd, um, great Islamic philosophers and scholars who are common commenting on these writings and this is very much setting the stage for the renaissance the world like the european world reborn in the old ideas of philosophy and history and culture that the greeks and romans had sort of passed on now that they now that the european world has access to these texts again there's this explosion of new scholarship which culminates in the foundation of basically science and the modern world uh, modern art, all of that stuff. Um, so this is kind of where we're going to end our historic discussion, much as it pains me not to follow Homer into the 17th century and beyond. Um, we have tracked Homer for a long time, and indeed Homer will continue to be in, an important component of the world. Like, we are going to see the first European translations of Homer in the 16th and 17th centuries into English, into French, um, all over the place. Homer mania is going to white, like sweep over the world again. Um, and we will see some of the, the ways that it has changed and modified in these uh, 16th and 18th centuries, or really the 17th century. Um, suffice it to say, from a historical perspective, this is where the modern world begins. And at every step of the way, Homer has been an important part of it. Um, Homer is still the basis by which nations claim authority, by which aristocrats came, claim lineage. Homer's story continues to live, even if it was rooted in fiction. And it is transformed many times from whatever actually went down in, you know, Willusa slash um, Hisserlich like thousands of years ago. The legacy is, however, the more important thing. Um, whatever happened archaeologically is interesting, but has relatively little bearing on all those medieval writers writing the story of Troilus and Cressida or forging their lineage on various genealogical documents. Homer remains important. The, Tro the Trojan War remains an important legacy and the founding event of the entire Western world in so many ways. Um, so we'll stop our history there. For the next lectures, which I'm probably not going to record since I have in fact covered Milton 1 and the early Cantos of Dante, which deal especially with the pagan world, Virgil and Homer. Since I've recorded those lectures before, I'm probably not going to do it again, so feel free to refer to those as we sort of close out our session here. Um, for now, let's put our discussion of Troy and the Trojan War to rest on, like, our online presence. Um, I hope you have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed doing all this crazy research and finding out all this stuff, even though it was exhausting sometimes. 
Um, I don't know what the future holds, either for the podcast or for the class general. generally. I imagine I'll make changes as, as time goes on. Um, if you are one of my students of Detroit the Trojan War, definitely follow up with Milton and Dante. The final exam cometh, so be aware of that. You'll probably have to know a lot of this history stuff for the exam, though I haven't written it yet, so I really wouldn't know. Um... For the rest of you out there in internet land, I hope you've enjoyed this, and I'll probably have stuff posted on my Patreon site soon about what is coming down the pike. Um, so look forward to that. At any rate, whatever the future turns out to be, I look forward to meeting it with you soon. <laughs>